What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on now? First of all, what's going on is we want you all to subscribe. Uh, we want you all to rate our podcast and, and spread the word wherever you are getting this, whether on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or any of the other servers we're available. And we hope that you'll uh, subscribe and recommend this to your friends. So that's the first thing that's going on. The second thing that's going on is that speaking of servers, <laughs> we, are, we are under attack, Danny, from the Russians. The Russians launched a massive, unprecedented cyber attack on American government and American business. It's called Solar Winds. And the name is not just one of these crazy names that the intelligence community always comes up with for its covert operations. It's the name of the company they hacked. They ingeniously came up with a plot because they know the NSA can only spy abroad. So they came in, used American servers, and basically put malware into a uh, software update sent out by this company, SolarWinds, which provides computer services to Fortune 500 companies and U.S. government agencies. And they managed to penetrate not just thousands of businesses, but the Department of State, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Treasury, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy, including the Nuclear Security Administrations, which maintains the U.S. nuclear stockpile. We don't know the full extent of the damage. We don't know whether it was just spying or whether they, in fact, actually uh, embedded the capability to wreak some sort of damage, to uh, change data, to uh, take control of servers. But it is a massive, massive intrusion, and the U.S. government completely missed it, completely. We didn't see it coming. It was only because an employee at one of the companies that got hacked noticed that someone was logging in to his account from St. Petersburg <laughs> and, and reported it back to SolarWinds. And then all of a sudden, we unraveled the fact that they had been in there for like 18 months. Unbelievable intrusion into our country. And how did this happen? So, I mean, a couple of points I think are important. You know, we want to call this an attack because that's become the language of cyber relations uh, is, you know, when somebody sneaks in your back door and attempts to watch your information and give itself or strategically sort of place itself for a potential attack, we call it an attack. But of course, what this really is, is 21st century espionage, right? This is you know, going and stealing documents and blueprints and personnel lists and following people around. You know, a lot of it is good old James Bond style surveillance. And the problem from my standpoint is not so much the shock that the Russians would engage in this kind of surveillance. It's how unbelievably lame we are. And that has been, you know, since we started talking about this, and we've done a couple of podcasts talking either directly or tangentially about this issue, we talk about the fact that America is just vulnerable and appears not to punish 
anyone. What did we do to the Chinese for the OPM hack, for the Office of Personnel Management? What did we do to the North Koreans for the Sony hack? What did we do to the Chinese for you know the hack that enabled them to develop an F-35 of their own? What have we done? Is there an answer? I don't think there is. We haven't done a heck of a lot. And uh, I would quibble with you a little bit in that it's not just espionage because it's sort of like saying, if I sneak into your back door of your house and don't take anything, but just watch you creepily, you know, there's that espionage. Please don't well, do that. I, please, I, please don't I, ever do that. I, I won't do that. And I don't recommend anybody does it because uh, <laughs> no one wants to know what you do in the privacy of your home, Danny. <laughs> but, oh, thank you. Let's make this but, about me. But let's take me out of this. Let's say somebody sneaks into your home and wanders around and looks through your cabinets and uh, looks through your computers and looks through your private information, uh, you would consider that an attack, even if they didn't take anything. You would consider that an invasion of your home and a crime. But also, if they're there and, they, and you don't even know it, and they can take stuff, or they can sneak into your computer and change your bank account numbers or you know whatever it is, the same intrusion that allows them to uh, surveil also allows them to you know, do things you know, that so the, we don't know what the Russians have embedded in these companies, in these government agencies, and whether they could activate them at a certain time. And all it takes is for them to go onto NASDAQ and, cha- and move one decimal point and the whole U.S. economy could collapse. So, yes, it is espionage. We do it to other countries and we've done it offensively when it comes to the Iranian nuclear program. But it's not just spying. It is something that needs to be deterred. And, I don't, and it's a very complicated question of how do you deter in the era of cyber? Right. Well, that is the question. And no, I agree with you. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody thinks of espionage as benign. But you brought up one of the main facts, which is that we engage in this ourselves. You know, we, we also use cyber to spy on bad guys and frankly, probably on our friends uh, as well. God knows, you know, the Israelis do plenty of that on us. So, you know, this is just one of those areas. I think the problem is that this is so murky that we don't have any sense of what's going on. When somebody builds a weapon system, we see it. You know, when somebody conducts a terrorist attack, we see it. When somebody plans something over the phone or over email, we see it. When there are these lurkers who are positioning themselves for an attack on us or a potential attack on us, I think we clearly don't see it. But not only do we not see it, we may not even know where it is. And our lack of doctrine, our lack of a declaratory policy, our lack of, honestly, of defenses, seems to me to be a vulnerability that is going to only get worse. You always make fun of me for bringing my Rumsfeldisms into uh, into the podcast, but Donald Rumsfeld famously said, there are known knowns, the things you know, you know, there are unknown unknowns, the things you don't know, you don't know, and then there are the unknown unknowns, the things you don't know, you don't know. This was an unknown unknown, and there are other unknown unknowns out there in the cyber world, and it's harder to know what's happening in the cyber world than there is in the physical world, because there's so much more of it and it's intangible. You know, we used to take satellite photos of the Russian, uh, you know, military parades to count the number of missiles. There was famous intelligence failure in the 50s where we thought that the Russian arsenal was huge because they counted all these missiles and it turned out that they kept turning them around and sending them down the avenue again. And we didn't notice, you know, so there was even deception back then, but it's so much easier to deceive in cyberspace than it is in the physical realm. And uh, 
this is a huge challenge because, you know, a country like Russia, we all look at Russia as a declining power. People question whether it's a threat or not anymore. Even a declining power, if it gets in and can shut down your power grid uh, with a bunch of trolls sitting in a St. Petersburg troll farm can wreak enormous damage. And it's other countries uh, as well that are developing this cable. This is like the poor man's nuclear weapon. You don't have to be rich to uh, have a bunch of, uh, you know, well-trained hackers with access to the internet and, and, and some computer servers, and you can do disproportionate damage to your adversaries. Not just that, but I do feel like the technology has advanced, but our appreciation of the technology's capabilities has not advanced as fast. You know, we don't know what we don't know, even at that personal level, but but certainly also at the government level. So we're really lucky to have snared somebody who has spent the last few years diving into this challenge, looking at not just cyber attacks on the United States, but cyber attacks by the United States, U.S. cyber defenses. David Sanger, uh, most of you know his name because he is the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times. But in addition to being part of uh, two Pulitzer Prize winning teams at the Times, he's also the author of The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage and Fear in the Cyber Age. That came out in 2018. And as David will tell you himself, he did what all savvy book writers do, which is that he turned it into a documentary for HBO. So watch it. We need a documentary, Danny. (laughs) (laughs) Why haven't we done that? We're not savvy enough to come up with a documentary? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, have a listen to our uh, conversation with David Sanger. Well, David, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Mark and Danielle. So let's start with the uh, with the big news first, which is that you have a, uh, a best-selling book that's been turned into a documentary called The Perfect Weapon. Tell us about the book and the documentary. Sure. So the book came out in 2018, Mark, and in the Department of uh, Shameless Promotion, we then turned it into a HBO doc. The book's title was The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age documentary came out in October. We wanted to bring it out just before the presidential election, certain that the Russians would mess with the presidential election. Turned out the Russians didn't do much with the presidential election. They just did stuff with the rest of the government's and private (laughs) industries networks, everything but the election. But uh, the documentary walks you through this past 10 years of remarkable short of war cyber conflict in which, as the book argues, cyber has become the primary way that nations undercut each other, seek power and advantage, knowing that they can calibrate it to avoid direct military conflict. And since no one wants to take on the United States directly in a military way, why not pick an inexpensive, hard to attribute weapon that you can dial up and dial down And that's exactly what's happened here. So the documentary will also take you a lot through supply chain hacks, which is something that I bet you and Danielle never thought you would be discussing on your podcast. (laughs) We're also (laughs) concerned about supply chains after what happened in 2020 with China. Uh, So supply chains have become uh, much more common (laughs) concern than they were uh, a year ago. So, David, the proximate cause of us asking you to join us was to talk about the sort of rather romantically named but highly unromantic and unpleasant Russian hack, SolarWinds, 
This was the hack that took place on a Texas-based security company. What do we know? So here's what we know. First of all, this was an incredibly complex and incredibly patiently executed hack. We reported a week ago, and SolarWinds confirmed publicly, that the first Russian entree into their system was in September of 2019. But the actual implant of the code wasn't until March of 2020, while we were all rushing off trying to protect ourselves for the first time from coronavirus. The second thing to know is that this was, as we were joking about before, a supply chain hack. So if, you're gonna, if we're going to hack into the Pentagon or into the Treasury or into the State Department, all things the Russians have done over the past 10 years, there are a couple of ways you can go at it. You could try to break directly into their system, try to get somebody's password, then make your way through to sort of some kind of system administrator's password, and you're into the State Department. And that's what happened in 2014, 2015. You'll remember the Russians got into the White House, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the State Department. You'll probably get caught doing that, just as you would probably get caught if you were crawling into a military base to try to disable some tanks. I mean, why go over the wall and risk getting shot if instead you could disable the tanks by getting into the factory that makes the ball bearings and flatten them on one side? And that, in fact, is exactly what they did with the SolarWinds hack. SolarWinds is software that manages network traffic and management. It's deep into the steamworks of how you make a computer network run. More than 400 of the 500 Fortune 500 companies use this SolarWinds software. The New York Times uses it because when we've got 20 million people coming in on a heavy news day, you want something that will balance the load, right? So that the system doesn't crash. And Lots of other companies that are not in the news business use this all the time. So, as it turns out, do most government agencies. And so the idea was, if you could get into the SolarWinds network management software and you could get into the updating system, you're then into every company and government agency that uses that system. And the update is particularly interesting because think about how many times you go and update your iPhone or your Android, right? You stick it on your bedside table at night, you plug it in, and then it's got new code. And you see in the morning, it says, we've just updated your iPhone. Now, Mark in particular, I know that he does not start up his phone until he has read every line of code that Apple just put in. Oh, well, maybe he doesn't, okay? So you're just trusting that that update does not have some malicious code in it that's getting them into your phone, which has your entire life in it. Well, the users of SolarWinds were trusting that when that update came along, it wasn't letting some foreign power into their systems. It turned out it was. And so as I understand it, our vaunted intelligence community and cyber defenses didn't catch this. It was caught by accident because uh, someone in one of the companies that had been hacked saw that there uh, that someone had logged into their account from Russia, I believe, or from someplace in an unauthorized uh, login and alerted solar winds. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct, that the way that they have gotten into this whole system was designed to avoid American defenses. Now, what are those defenses? The U.S. government has a set of defenses 
that works by something called the Einstein system. It's supposed to convey genius and it looks at all the government systems and it goes after known ways of breaking into computer systems. So if you come in with an unknown way that has never been seen before, you're likely to miss it. And by the way, it didn't check for updates of software of the kind we just discussed. Now, what does the NSA do? The NSA is authorized to go into foreign computer systems and put in our own little implants, both to watch what they're doing. And if we're doing computer network attacks, it's our way in. So what do the Russians think in this case? Well, the NSA can only look abroad. We don't let American intelligence agencies look inside the United States. So let's design this to be an attack that's completely launched inside the United States. That when we get into the solar wind system and we fake it out, we're sending out our signals to command and control servers, Russian controlled command and control servers that are hosted on Amazon or some other US server company so that the NSA couldn't see it. So they completely flew around under and above our radar, which is why in the end, FireEye found this because the Russians went after these kind of, of systems rather than the NSA. But you're saying that the Einsteins of our intelligence community didn't figure out that we could be hacked through a security update or a software update that wasn't contemplated? It was contemplated. If you go to computer security conferences, there's a lot of discussion of supply chain. I moderated a Aspen Institute supply chain panel about three weeks before this happened. It would have been a hell of a lot more interesting had I done it three weeks later, right? <laughs> uh, but the fact of the matter is that while widely discussed, our defenses weren't built around it. So David, we've, we've learned a lot about this hack since, since the initial reporting. But my first question is just, what are they doing? Because this clearly is not, you know, people have, have described it as an act of war or an attack. But I mean, if we look at what they did in those spaces and we compare it to, for example, an effort to hack the election in 2018, or the Chinese um, assault on personnel records of the US government. There, you know, we say, aha, that's what we know, because we are Einstein's. But in this case, what's it all about? So right now, Danielle, this looks like it was just straight up espionage. We do it, they do it, right? And so no one in the US government wants to call this an attack because if it's an attack, then what we do every day to them is also an attack. The problem with this kind of intrusion is that you can begin it as an intelligence collection operation, but you can use the same access to go plant backdoors in the system and do something malicious later on. Think about the most famous, most sophisticated hack done in history. It was the United States and Israel attacking the Iranian centrifuges, Operation Olympic Games, known widely as, as Stuxnet. And I wrote a lot about this, as you and I have discussed, you know, when it happened 10 years ago. And the code got out and this very secret program became very, very public. But in that particular case, we actually created backdoors and injected software to do actual physical damage. Our fear is that the Russians have created a way that they could do that but we may not know for months or years if they're actually gonna use that access. And that creates a big problem for Joe Biden 
because he is inheriting a government running on a set of computer networks that he can't trust. Can I just quickly follow up and, and ask you, how is it possible that we are incapable of following the trail internally, that we are incapable of finding those, those access points and shutting them off? I remember Mark and I had, gosh, I can't, I can't remember who it was, Mark. I think it was Jack Keen on talking at a certain moment about cyber warfare. And Jack had been in touch with the head of the NSA. And you now Mark and I really pressed him. Are we as good as they are? And the response was, we are not just as good as they are. We are way better than they are. This seems to suggest we're not better than them. Jack does say that we're better offensively, not defensively, that we have the best cyber offense in the world by second to none. It's our defenses that are failing us. Is that fair, David? Yeah. So first of all, we don't know because in the world of, you know, in the nuclear world, you can look at a test explosion, you can count the number of missiles, you can count the number of weapons. You have some metrics. In the cyber world, you're going by skill level. And so you're constantly surprised that somebody's more skillful than you thought. So I believe we probably have the best offense, but that doesn't mean that because of the legal restrictions, moral restrictions and other things that we're willing to go use that offense. Could we shut down all of Russia, their electric grid, everything else? Yes. Would you do that with a nuclear power at the other end? Probably not. To Mark's point about defense, Look, in cyber right now, the advantage still goes to the offense side because they have so many ways in. And it's kind of like that old line about terrorism, which is, you know, on defense, you have to be right 100% of the time. If you're a terrorist, you only have to be right once. Well, in cyber, you only have to be right once. And by the way, if you've got 100 ways you've tried and it didn't work, probably no one's going to notice. They're only going to see it when they see it. And what do we know in the Russian case? This was going on since March, and we discovered it in December. They had nine months they were in the system before anyone saw them. If that sounds familiar, remember that the Russians had nine months inside the DNC before the FBI could get the attention of senior members of the Democratic National Committee to go pay attention to them and route them out. Or as I like to say in the writing about the DNC hack, There are babies in America who were conceived and born in the time period it took the FBI and the NSA to alert the president of the United States that someone was inside the DNC. You draw the analogy with terrorism, and I actually think it's an excellent analogy because cyber attackers are like terrorists in the sense that they take advantage of our free and open society and use it as a way to attack us from within, particularly, in, as you described it, literally from within, from American servers to avoid the, uh, our intelligence community. In the war on terror, we recognize that we couldn't defend every place in all times against every possible technique. And so the only way to stop terrorists was to go on the offense. President Trump has used offensive cyber weapons probably more, and it may be just be simply because they came online or just during his presidency, but he's used them more aggressively than any of his predecessors. I got him to acknowledge in an interview that he had launched a cyber attack on Russia in response to the 2018 Russian electoral interference. He's used it against Iran uh, when they shot down an unarmed uh, weapon, uh, an unarmed uh, drone. How do we deter cyber attackers and how do we use our offensive capabilities in a way that doesn't start an all-out war but establishes deterrence in cyberspace? 
So Mark, you've touched on two or three really big issues in cyber deterrence. So the first thing to know is take everything that we ever learned about nuclear deterrence and throw it away. Because while the problems are the same, the strategy we came up with then, which was mutually assured destruction, doesn't work in a short of war weapon that you're using each and every day. And that we want to continue to be able to use and that our adversaries want to use against us. The second thing to know is that while President Trump boasted about doing these, the cyber activity that we know about that he's launched has been fairly minor, particularly compared to the Bush-Obama operation against Iran that was launched by Bush and then inherited by Obama. While the president says that, oh yeah, I was responsible for the 2018 thing against Russia, only indirectly. In August of 2018, he issued a presidential decision memorandum. It's memorandum number 13. Its contents are still classified, but they were described by John Bolton when he was still national security advisor. And it basically gave General Nakasone, the head of U.S. Cyber Command and the NSA, the authority to go be much more aggressive in putting these sensors and basically launching low-level attacks in foreign networks without having to go back to the president every time. In the Obama era and the Bush era, there was this enormously complex system in which some third assistant secretary in the Commerce Department could raise objections about the trade implications of doing something. And the people from the NSA are looking around saying, how did he show up at the table? You know, where'd she come from? So he got rid of a lot of that. And I think that's to his credit. My, my bet is that Biden will hold on to that. And there were new authorities of Congress gave Cyber Command to prepare the battlefield and traditional military activity in cyberspace in the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act. So we have given new authorities. Nakasone has used those more aggressively than any of his predecessors had. And still the Russians came back. So the question is, are they paying a high enough price? And the reason they're not paying a high price right now, Mark, is exactly what you described. We're not sure we can control the escalation if you come back that way. So, David, part of a lot of this goes to, you know, for those of us who, who studied international relations, you know, national security policy in grad school, this goes to these sort of doctrinal questions. You know, you mentioned mutually assured destruction. There's been a lot of, frankly, unbelievably boring, dry work done on cyber doctrine. And none of it has really resulted in a declarative policy of the United States. In other words, you know, a policy where we say to the Iranians, the North Koreans, the Russians, if you do this, we will do that. Absent that, it's basically for them a shot in the dark. Why not? You know, why not nick off with you know whatever you can get? Why not establish yourself through back doors in you know with the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense? Why not for the Chinese? You know, why not sit and steal the F-35 plans? Aren't we basically creating for ourselves a very serious problem down the road where we are going to have to react to something in a way that is unexpected and that serves in no way to deter our enemies. I agree with all of that except your phrase down the road. We have <laughs> created a system that has already caused those problems over the last six years. When North Korea went after Sony, it was a big debate in the Obama administration. Is this an act of war? Is this an act of sabotage? Is it what Obama called it, which was an act of digital vandalism? 
Well, I would say at least it was sabotage. In each of these cases, we have tied ourselves up in knots about how we could respond and how we would be willing to respond for the escalation reasons we've described. But it's gotten even more complicated than that. The first problem that we have is that these are things we do too. Olympic Games against the Iranians was a supply chain hack. It was different than what the Russians just did. So supposing the Secretary of State says, I tell you what, we're going to sit down with the Russians and the Chinese and we're going to work out some rules of the road. And we're going to agree that there's some certain things that we will not do. We won't go after election systems. We won't go after the electric grid, because if you turn off the electricity in a country, people are going to die. People who are in hospitals, people who are confined to home, something like that. We could put together, you know, over a beer, a whole list of things that would be off limits. And then the intelligence agencies would come in and say, well, wait a minute, before we sign up to this, who wants to limit the next president of the United States when we come in and say, well, here are two choices, bombing Tehran because they're going for a bomb, right? Or for a nuclear weapon or turning off the lights as a warning there. Don't you want to leave the president of the United States the option that they could do the event that might cause fewer lives? Election interference. We all agree it's a bad thing to mess around in elections. But I think there are some in the intelligence community that made the argument to me already that you wouldn't necessarily want to keep a president from being able to go fix an election and keep a Maduro-like figure from showing up again, right? <laughs> So we're not sure that we really want to sign on to the rules that might protect us. Third problem, which is there's way too much secrecy around cyber because it's designed by the intelligence community. There turns out they're secretive people who knew, right? And so we're getting in the way of our own deterrence by not willing to be willing to come out and declare what we could do and what we will do. So you joked at the beginning of the podcast that you, uh, you released this movie, uh, expecting it to come out at the same time as the big Russian election hack, and you were actually looking at the wrong thing. It was something else. Is that also true of our intelligence community? Were we Absolutely. so focused on the, on the Russian election threat? And didn't, in a way, the Russian interference in 2018 sort of lay a uh, perfect cover for this attack, which basically distracted us from the real danger? So the 2016 stuff, uh, yep. which was going into the registration systems, made us want to focus again on registration in 2018 for the midterms. That's when Nakasone did the operation that the president talked to you about, right? Mm -hmm. And he knocked the Internet Research Agency offline for a couple of days and sent some warnings to the GRU operators, cyber operators, to their cell phones saying, we know who you are, we know where you live, and uh, you really don't want to go mess with us. In 2020, the entire intelligence community was rightly focused on the election, because at the time we thought that the Russians, not the president, were the ones who were most likely to throw into question whether or not a legitimate election was actually being held. Right? So it turned out we had that one wrong as well. While we were focused on that, I think the Russians rightly figured out that you know while everybody's running around protecting the big bank down the road, why don't you go clean out all of the other companies that are three blocks away? And that's essentially what they did with SolarWinds. SolarWinds is not a system that is used in the election systems. 
but it is used in corporate America and it is used by government agencies. And they took a look at it and said, here's a ripe target. And by the way, Mark, know what the password was for getting into the update system for solar wind? Password. No. Who would use that? <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six. Close. It was solar winds one, two, three. <laughs> I was I was almost there. Unbelievable. It. President Trump, uh, when this came out, uh, you know, immediately started to question whether it was Russia or maybe it was China, China. Uh, that yeah. did it. And yeah, could have and, been a 400 uh, but, pound guy sitting on the end of his bed. <laughs> exactly. But while China was clearly not behind this, China does pose a massive cyber threat to the United States. Jack Keane says it's actually the largest hacker of, of U.S. systems in the world. Could you talk a little bit about the cyber threat that we face with China. And, you know, Russia is a, is a militarily declining power, but it has this cyber capability. China is a rising military power that also has a massive cyber capability. And how is that threat different from you know, what we face from Russia? It's a great question. And the fact of the matter is that people's cyber capabilities, like their nuclear capabilities and like their air capabilities, tend to reflect what their national objectives are. So because the Russians are a declining power, as, as you put it uh, just right, they are interested in being a disruptive power. Let me give you an example. The Russians for the past couple of years have been running around the Atlantic on both sides, but mostly on the European side, with these submarines that basically have a giant scissors attached in front, mapping out where we run all of our undersea cables, which carry 95% of the internet traffic. So if you really wanted to go cut off the internet in the United States, why bother with all this code stuff? Just go to the deep bottom and cut a couple hundred cables and you've done your disruption thing. Okay, so that's the way they think. How do the Chinese think? They think, well, why would you go threaten to cut a couple hundred cables and you know, get into a war when you could, if you've got all the money in the world, lay new cable across the Pacific and then into the Atlantic and gradually suck up that internet traffic and route it all through Beijing. Now, the Russians couldn't even think about this because it costs more than their GDP. And for the Chinese, it's like a relatively small line item. So the Chinese are busy laying cable like mad. And over time, if they can price the cost of that cable traffic cheaply enough, they will attract more and more of the traffic and thus have control over it. That gives you a sense of how two very different powers think about the same problem. That's absolutely fascinating. So I want to wrap up with one of those extraordinarily annoying reality TV type questions for you. <laughs> If you look forward, understanding everything that you do, uh, you know, about the sort of the topography of this challenge, what worries you the most in this cyberspace for our national security? Great question, uh, Danielle. What worries me the most is two things. First, these systems are now so complex that we don't understand the vulnerabilities. You know, we thought nuclear weapons were complex. We thought the F-35 was complex because of its, you know, tens of thousands of parts. But if you're trying to worry about controlling the update of every piece of software and worrying about whether or not the solar wind software was actually assembled where the company is based in Austin, Texas, 
or whether it was assembled in Prague or elsewhere in Eastern Europe where they have research laboratories, you're going to go crazy because there are thousands of solar winds kind of systems out there and trying to understand each and every one of them is a Herculean task. So number one problem is complexity. Number two problem I worry about is that because 85% of internet traffic runs through private networks, this is not a problem the US government can completely solve, right? If you're doing traditional weapon systems, you make your own weapons. The Russians know what weapons they have. You can actually count them. Here, if 85% of the network that you're worried about is in private hands, you don't have control over that. Third problem, it's the secrecy issue I just described. Almost everything about our cyber capabilities and the foreigner cyber capabilities we consider classified, which gets in the way of sharing that data instantly back and forth with private industry. I would start by declassifying everything about cyber and then making the NSA and Cyber Command and others make a case for specific classification rather than the other way around. David, thank you for joining us. And where can people find your documentary? On HBO and HBO Max. It's sitting right there waiting to be, waiting to be downloaded. I will watch it soon. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and your book's on Amazon. I'm willing to bet for everybody who's interested in Deep Dive. Terrific, Thanks. David. Thank you for taking the time. We know it's busy times for reporters in Washington, D.C. I can't figure out why, but thank Great. you so much thank for your you. time and for a really fascinating conversation. Take thank care. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, Danny, that was depressing. <laughs> One of the things that has defined us as a country is that we are, you know, we're surrounded by vast oceans on each side of our country and friendly neighbors to the north and south. And we've sort of been an island of security in the world. In the Cold War, we were threatened by the prospect of nuclear annihilation, but that was a weapon that was so catastrophic that, uh, you know, mutually assured destruction really prevented anyone from really exercising it. But here we're now in an age where those oceans and friendly neighbors don't protect us anymore. And there are weapons that people are using that are low cost enough that people are using them against us and infiltrating our country in ways that probably has never happened in our history. I think there's another element to this that, that I found particularly, first of all, interesting, but also frightening that, that David talked about. So everybody remembers, and we actually did a podcast on Huawei, the challenge that we faced with Huawei. So, yep. you know, the United States wakes up, smells the coffee and says, damn, we can't allow the People's Republic of China, the Chinese Communist Party to dominate 5G, the entire next generation of cellular communications. So we need to do something about it. Oh, sorry, we don't have an alternative to that. And so we went to the Brits, we went to the, the Germans, we went to the Australians, we went to all of our allies and said, Huawei is a big problem, you need to wake up just like we did and smell the coffee. And all of them put down their Huawei cell phones for a second and said, huh, no way. If it hadn't been for COVID and China's yep. malign behaviors since COVID, we would not have gotten the Europeans to turn around on Huawei. Now, understanding the Chinese are laying cable in order to take over internet traffic, all of this you know, looks like the spirit of entrepreneurship. But everything in China is dual use. Everything the Chinese government does has another purpose other than its obvious one. And that is so worrying for us. And I don't 
know what we do. And I don't think that we are not just able to compete. I don't think that we're prepared to compete. I don't know what we do about that. Well, I'll tell you what we do, Danny, is we keep focusing on this on the podcast and bringing in smart people like David Sanger to tell us what the hell is going on. How's that? That's about all uh, all our part can be. But calling attention to this truly is important. You know, we can't do everything at the eleventh hour. We can't race in. You know, once a pro once a program is is ninety five percent done by our adversaries and suddenly say, "Oh, that's dangerous. Stop that." Well, anyway, we're going to keep covering it. We've had some great <laughs> experts on this on this podcast. We had uh, Keith Alexander, who's former head of the NSA. We've had Jack Keen on to talk about it. David, we're going to stay on this topic and bring you the smartest people in Washington who know what the hell is going on. Thank you for listening. Again, please subscribe. Please uh, rate us. Give us your comments. We would love to read the comments on Apple uh, Podcasts and tell your friends to listen to what the hell is going on. And remember, compliments to me, complaints to Mark. And of course. Technical, technical to Alexa. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Our producer is Alexa Santry, and a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@aei.org, Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Um...